The XY Advisor crowdfund is now live. To become an investor, head to virtual.com forward slash company forward slash XY Advisor. Make sure you read the offer documentation. It would be great to have you on as an investor. So feel free to join the cap sheet. Okay, onto the podcast. Welcome to the XY Advisor podcast, to join a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. This episode is proudly sponsored by Integrity Life. Just like XY Advisor, Integrity isn't afraid to push for positive change in our industry, especially when it comes to the cost of life insurance. Right now, many Australians are underinsured, but Integrity is working to change all that with sustainable pricing and discounts that last as long as the policy. Next time you need a quote, why not give Integrity a try? Head to integritylife.com.au forward slash XY. G'day, how's it going? What do you know? Strike a like. Clayton here from XY. I'm with Matt down in Melbourne. Mate, thanks for joining. Absolute pleasure. Great to be back on the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, the advice tech report has come out. I've had, a, I've had a little bit of a look through. There's a couple of things I kind of wanted to go through. Um, first and foremost, you, this is like the third or fourth year that you've put this out, right? Yeah, this is the fourth year that we've done it. And as my colleagues like to say, it's uh, certainly the biggest and the best report we've done so far. In fact, it's so big uh, that we've had to split it into two volumes. So there's now a advice tech report, uh, which looks at, I guess, the trends that are happening around the industry, as well as a supplier's guide, which is uh, equally, if not more interesting in my, from my perspective. Yeah, right. What was the thinking, I guess, if you go back a handful of years to why uh, NetWealth wanted to start delivering these kind of reports? Like what was in your mind or the team's mind that said, actually, we want to figure out what's happening in the broader sense for financial planning and technology? Yeah, it's a good question. So as a business, one of our key key values uh, is curiosity. So um, we've always been really interested in what's happening both domestically, what's happening overseas, and more importantly, you know, what, what, what can we learn and what can we then share back, back with the community? And at our core, we, we often get asked the question, are we a wealth management business or are we a tech company? Uh, and there's no really good answer for that, to be honest. I think any business this day, if it's not utilising tech, um, probably has got a relatively short, short life. Um, so I think we're, we're definitely both. Um, but, you know, if you look at the tech, tech side of things, um, you know, we do play a fairly important part in an advisor's office as far as their tech stack goes. Um, and really that sort of curiosity around how, how do we integrate and what, what's the ecosystem look like uh, that we participate in? Uh, how can we help advisors understand it better? Uh, and how can we hopefully uh, try and improve the industry for, um, through sort of the insights we're able to get uh, and drive greater efficiency and increasingly now uh, better client engagement? Yeah. What clients expect has just exploded over the last you know, handful of years. I mean, the last decade especially, but I mean, it is... What I expect from uh, you know a company when I purchase a service now is extremely high. I mean, uh, recently becoming a dad, my wife gets me a ten uh, pass for CrossFit, right? Because you know you got to watch out for that dad bod, and uh, and and the CrossFit company doesn't give me a call, right? They just kind of give me this login. 
and I get no real communication. It comes from a, like a do not reply email. And I'm sitting here going, this is a really poor user experience. Now, uh, that's just because I am now uh, expecting to understand what's happening immediately, right? With, with all of my engagements, with all of my interactions, with everything that I deal with in life, I want the person who is providing me that service, whether it's a professional service or whether it's even a tech service, right? Whatever it is, I want to understand it without a user manual. And uh, I want to feel like, um, especially if it's a service, if it's a service, I want to feel like someone knows about me as an individual, right? So um, I didn't know who to email. Eventually I figured out the online uh, you know, system, but I realized that my expectation of what I wanted and what was delivered was drastically apart. And I think Clayton, just on that, from a digital experience, unfortunately that is probably better than many digital experiences than financial advisors are providing at the moment. The fact that you got an email and you got a login, uh, you know, that that's actually a long way ahead of, of where some practices are at. And, that, and that's a real concern. And uh, to your point before, and it's probably one of my most overused uh, uh, quotes these days, is that our service expectations are set by the last best experience we had. So if your last best experience was with Facebook or Netflix or, or any of the big tech companies, which inevitably it will be these day and age, that's what you expect from all of your service providers. And that is an extremely high bar. That's a really good point. Yeah, you're exactly right. That's probably why I was expecting so much and I was disappointed. And at the same time, I understand that these guys aren't a multi-billion, multinational dollar company. And yet I've just got that inherent expectation. Mm. Um, and so, uh, so with what advisors deliver, I mean, it, the expectation is so, the expectations for what advisor has to deliver to all segments of the market has been increased, right? To, to compliance and regulation, to, to, uh, to um, clients themselves, I think it's definitely difficult. And so to your original point, it was because the expectations are uh, 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 higher and rising quickly, how do we use technology to fill in those gaps? Because it's a must now. It's, it's not a case of, you know, maybe a decade ago, maybe a little less than a decade ago, people sitting around learning about how to put tech in their practice. It's way beyond that. Mm. Um, you, it's going to be hard to deliver advice unless you're using technology. Um, and so to your point, uh, about, or to, to your, um, uh, report, I should say, um, what are the most obvious signs of an advisor benefiting from tech? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and, to, to your point, there is many different areas that you can enhance your business using tech. Uh, so it's not, not easy just to focus on just client engagement or uh, the back office efficiency. Um, it really has got to be pervasive in pretty much every part of your business. In fact, through, through the report, and we've tried to divide the different suppliers and providers into different segments. We've identified 26 different areas within an advice practice that can be enhanced using technology. So with a choice of 26, you need to try and understand, A, what that means for you and your business, but also where do you start? And that's where it can become really confusing for, for a small business or even a big business. So typically what we're seeing out, out in the market at the moment, and this hasn't changed a lot for the last couple of years, is that most advice firms uh, have typically got somewhere between 12 and 15 different tech solutions in their business or in their tech stack. 
right. um, to try and solve different problems. Now, the problem with that is a lot of these systems actually have overlapping features, uh, which means that you're paying multiple times for uh, fundamentally the same outcome. Uh, a lot of them don't integrate particularly well, and it's expensive. So when you start to add up all of these different costs, um, back of the envelope, we're sort of finding that the average cost per seat in a practice, so per, per staff member, is about $10,000. Wow. Uh, and we, we think that that can actually be significantly uh, reduced through the efficient implementation of tech and actually understanding what tech you want to put into your business and what the actual purpose of that tech is. So let's not go and buy the, the new shiny toy. Uh, let's actually understand, you know, is it about back office efficiency? Is it about delivering advice at a lower cost? Is it about delivering an exceptional client service uh, experience? You know, what is it that we're actually trying to do over the next six or 12 months, and it might change year on year, um, to try and reduce the number of tech providers to make sure that they're integrating properly and that they're actually uh, delivering an outcome for the, for the business? Yeah, once a year at XY, we go through um, and we have an audit of all of our tech costs. And then we say, does Zoho do this? Right. Because uh, I'm not sure if you're highly familiar with Zoho, but it's, mm. it's, uh, it took me a few years to come around to start using this product. But what they've done is they've achieved sort of this, this size and scale now where they just have teams dropping in new apps on a regular basis that you don't actually have to pay for. As long as you've got your sort of annual subscription, there's these new apps that are constantly dropping in. And so each year we're able to, to cut one, two, maybe three or four different tech um, uh, you know, item line, line items on, on our PL and move it across into Zoho, which saves us a bunch of money, but also allows the different functions or the different parts of the business to talk to one another. Because that's a huge part of it. Like if the average, did you say the average was around 10? It's between 12 and 15. So believe it or not, the better advice tech firms are actually using more. Wow. Uh, doesn't mean they're necessarily using them all well, but they're using more because they've got a better process around trialing and implementing uh, those particular softwares. But uh, I think doing that annual audit, incredibly powerful. Uh, and if I was to suggest one thing to the listeners today, um, do that. Go and have a look at actually what sits in your tech stack and, uh, and have a clean up. I heard a, a great story recently about personal uh, tech management, if you like, uh, and this individual, um, I won't name my old man, uh, he actually <laughs> will deliberately cancel his credit card every couple of years because it cancels all the subscriptions. Uh, and then that gives you an opportunity to see which ones you use. Uh, and when you come across one that you haven't uh, paid for, then you can subscribe to it again. But otherwise, you just accumulate subscriptions yes. everywhere. Uh, and, I, and I thought that was actually not, not a bad tip. Yeah, no, I fully agree. Um, so uh, with the, the things that are obvious, that's, a, that's an interesting insight because there's so many, right? Um, and each of those tech pieces, as you mentioned, won't necessarily um, speak to one another. They don't make the journey easy for either the advisor or the client, right? And so you've got these a lot of com competing communications happening internally. I think a huge part of tech is it, if it actually does create efficiencies, right? Um, that's, and it's kind of an interesting thing because you might like a particular feature. And so you might want to add additional, say, value to your client's life or to your internal um, process. So you say, actually, this will make whatever it is, uh, it solves the problem. However, uh, does it actually reduce the amount of time that you spend uh, doing the whole process? And that's a key part. And I, I think it does actually take a little while to get your head around. But I think the first thing that you should pay attention to as an advisor 
is, uh, as you mentioned, how many pieces of tech. So if I am using 10, okay, well, why am I using 10? Are they, you know, do they talk to one another? And if, if it only, if I, if I've got a piece of tech that only does one thing, can I move it across to another? Because realistically, even if you get Zapier involved, mm. it's still pretty complicated. Like tech, tech is there to design, like it's designed to make our lives easier, but unless we're in control of it, it doesn't make it easier. It makes it harder. And so uh, sort of wrangling that in into as few pieces of tech as possible um, and making sure they all speak to each other just for the sole purpose that you've got a clear uh, compliance line, right? Mm -hmm. So you can say it captured uh, here and all of that data has gone all the way through to SOA and it's kept over here. And I mean, that, that in itself is hugely valuable. Did you see any, cause I, I believe your report mentions stars, but did you see any stars that were using less than the average and, and had sort of had, um, I guess, experts come in a really sort of, cut it down the amount of different programs they were using and making sure it was all running efficiently and effectively. What, what was that kind of like in a standard deviation, that top two or 3%, what, what did their practices look like? Yeah. Um, they're a really interesting group, actually the advice tech stars. So it's a new concept that we brought into the report this year to try and identify the, the best behaviors of this sort of unique uh, and special group. Um, so the advice tech stars as a group, um, currently there's around one in eight practices would be considered an advice tech star. If you have to look at across uh, the whole industry, um, typically these advice tech stars are clearly using advice tech well in their businesses. Um, they're managing, in many cases, north of $500 million in assets under management. Uh, they typically have higher revenues. Uh, they've got better EBITDA margins. And due to the size of the businesses, they're also able to hire more staff. Now, that sort of seems at odds with getting efficiency from uh, advice tech, but the reality is that it means that they're able to, in many cases, have a dedicated IT person. So they've got someone whose sole purpose is looking after the tech stack and the IT within their business, whether it's maybe even as an external consultant or someone that's got that sole responsibility internally. They also have a really clear roadmap. So as part of their business planning every year, they'll, they'll sit down and, and work out what they want to spend money on. And uh, on average, they'll also spend more on tech um, than other firms because they've got that capability. So, you know, they really are seeing, seeing the benefits of that advice tech. Um, and what we also saw that if you look across the sort of the areas that they're investing in and putting that uh, technology in, um, the first is absolutely around delivering exceptional client experiences. And, and we'll come back to that, I think, because that's probably one of, one of the key areas. Um, the second, and, uh, and this is very much COVID related, uh, is they're investing into how do they support a distributed workforce and also a distributed client base. Uh, and we've seen, I think, some incredibly positive signs come out of COVID, not, not ignoring the sort of personal toll and, and, the, um, and the health pandemic that sits behind it. Um, what we've really seen is that tech adoption by both advisors and also clients has probably accelerated by between five and 10 years. Uh, and that's huge. So we look at, uh, you know, people now using, you know, virtual meetings. That's just how we communicate. We, we wake up in the morning and from 8.30 till 6, I'm now on, on Zoom or Teams. Uh, we're using far more uh, multi-mode communication. So people are communicating via, you know, WhatsApp and messaging and, you know, becoming far more social in that regard. Uh, something as simple as digital signatures. It's taken a long time. Everyone knew that they should probably move in that direction, but they haven't. Um, mm. Whereas now most people don't have a printer at home uh, to do work, let alone to, to sign client documents. So um, that is now pervasive in sort of pretty much all of our interactions. And, and as I've often said there, a big part of digital signatures was actually sitting with the manufacturers. So sitting with us. 
Um, and certainly us and, and, and others I know have sort of accelerated that project. So we now accept digital signatures on pretty much every document, um, except for I think binding uh, death norms uh, and uh, powers of attorney. Uh, without it, we just simply couldn't be doing business. Uh, and so it's become just, again, embedded in how we do business. And I think those habits, which typically take about three months to form, uh, are now with us forever. Uh, and, that, and that's a real positive because it's going to um, drive efficiency, but also by virtue of that, actually improve the client experience. So really, really positive in that regard. Uh, but also just the whole work from home trend, which, uh, which I'm, to be honest, I'm, I'm loving. Uh, and again, I've been doing it now for you know, close to six or seven months. I think going back to the office is going to be hard and it's going to be a hard habit to, to change. So that one's a bit, a bit of a given. Uh, and the other one that's um, you know, quite interesting is just capitalising on new revenue streams. So looking at how do they move into adjacent services or often new services um, you know, to those existing clients. So you know, Robo is the obvious example, and we can chat about that because I don't necessarily yet think it has a place in Australia, uh, but it might be you know, mortgages or accounting or bookkeeping. So there's a whole range of different areas that advisors are looking at that they can enable using technology. So uh, each of those three areas, really big focus for the industry and for advice tech stars, they're, they're really taking advantage of it. So you, you mentioned the robo. I think that's a really interesting thing to touch on. Mm. Um, <clears throat> see, the, the conversations that I have with advisors is they're saying, okay, how do we deliver as much value to their clients as possible? So it's almost as if, um, and, and XY has largely grown in conjunction with this pursuit. It is what can I do to add value? Mm-hmm. Right, because the more value I add to a client's life, the more revenue I can earn as myself and get more clients. Right, so so there there's a bunch of um, really important reasons to do your job as well as humanly possible, and it often comes down to how do I improve this part of my service or how do I improve that part of my service. On the flip side of that, I see a lot of uh, the market talking about scaled advice or, or, or robo advice, right? Episodic advice, I think is the new term. Yes. Episodic advice. Right. And so, um, to me and the conversations that I'm having, that would be the complete antithesis of what advisors are aiming to do. They're aiming to become more valuable and play a bigger role in their clients' lives, not to do this transactional episodic advice. So, um, I'm interested to see where you think, the future's headed because we've got robo advice and you mentioned you don't quite think it's, it has its place in Australia yet. I've been thinking that for a while, but I'm also interested to see when do you think it would be valuable and more importantly, how an advisor can add that to their repertoire to add more value to more people. Yeah. And I think defining robo is important In, in Australia. Robo really means automated investment service. Uh, and to be honest, there's a whole range of ways you can do that. Um, so with, with, with Robo particularly, um, you know, a number of practices are looking at it uh, and, you know, there'll be different ways that people are thinking about it. But a lot of practices are saying, is, is it a way to service my C&D clients uh, or my smaller balance clients? So to your point earlier, how do I service more clients? I don't understand why that is important because if you're looking at putting in place a robo advisor, we'll come back to automated investment services in a moment, you're delivering a service which you may or may not be making a margin on, uh, it might be a subscription basis, to nurture a client base which is actually creating risk for your business that may or may not convert into a full service client in the future. So it seems like a very high cost, risky strategy to nurture a lead generation strategy 
and, and I can't quite co- correlate those two. So increasingly, and, and I think this is unfortunately, you know, um, where we are in the, in the industry at the moment, the cost of advice has gone up. We all know that. Um, so people are moving increasingly to those sort of clients that can afford to pay three, four, five thousand $5,000 a year, uh, which means that there is a, uh, you know, a significant segment of the Australian market that can't. Now, perhaps that market is better off uh, with a industry fund. Perhaps they are better off with a robo-style advisor. But that's a specific business model. Uh, it's not a way to, to generate leads for, f- for future clients, in, in my mind anyway. I think really when people are thinking about robo, and this is where we're think- doing a lot of work and thinking at the moment as a business, it's actually creating an engagement model. So how do I create a high-touch uh, engagement model in a digital environment? Now, what is it that people are actually valuing from an engagement model? Is it investments? Because if it's investments, you can put them into a managed account. You don't need a robo-solution to do that. Uh, and certainly that is a big trend at the moment. We're seeing particularly um, post-pandemic or um, post the last three to six months, those that had managed accounts in their business versus those that didn't got, got through you know, pretty well unscathed. Uh, they're able to regularly meet uh, with their investment managers or if they had a private label with their investment committee, take overnight data and then implement changes into portfolios rapidly. So we looked yeah, right. at our hist- we looked at the history uh, through, the, through the last three to six months uh, and people were regularly trading. They were able to sell out of assets they shouldn't have been in on the way down. And on the 19th of March, and this, this figure is staggering, um, so through our managed account offering, which is about 5,000 clients and about uh, 5 or $6 billion, on the uh, 19th of March, which was pretty much the, the low point of the market, we processed 42,500 transactions. Uh, and 70% of those were buys. People have made a lot of money on the way up from that. And that was just the ability to suddenly implement a consistent um, experience across all clients in a highly, highly automated way. So, so getting back to my point, you know, if that's what you're trying to achieve out of a robo, you don't need a robo. That, those, all those services already exist. So therefore, how do we actually pr- provide or start to build out a really engaging service that, you know, going right back to the end, uh, start of the conversation that competes with the likes of Facebooks and Netflix? Yeah. Isn't it more about communication? Isn't it about being able to provide utility, whether that's through, you know, things like cash flow or budgeting or regular investment updates? Uh, there's a whole range of things that you can engage with digitally within, uh, with a very broad number of clients that can then hopefully make sure that when they need help, they either press a big button that says speak to my advisor, or more importantly, you can use the data and your data is then telling you when to contact that client. So, you know, they've just had a significant birthday milestone or their contributions are under or over, whatever it might be, or they're logging on more frequently because they're anxious. You know, data can actually be that trigger that helps you to then go and speak to the client at the right time. Uh, and I think all those sort of scenarios are far more interesting than providing a automated investment service, which really isn't what the clients are always looking for. Uh, they're, they're actually looking for someone to help coach them and guide them through their financial uh, issues. Yeah, that's a really good point. So you, you see uh, robo-advice as a tool in, in as much as it helps advisors as being almost like a key milestone personal assistant for the advisor. So for robo to be successful, it needs to move into more strategic advice. And yes. I think that's many years off, as opposed to just an investment solution, because as we all know, investment's clearly important, but it's actually the strategy that goes around it and the ability to hold a client accountable for that advice that's really important. That is really interesting. Is any tool out there doing that? Uh, not, not that I can see. Um, I mean, so certainly, and, and this leads into one of the things we we're going to talk about today, um, you know, client portals. Uh, is clearly you know, a step forward. Now, it's not doing robo, but it is providing a range of different engagement solutions. Um, and you know, at NetWealth, um, you know, unashamedly, that's what we're doing a lot of work on at the moment. We'll, we'll have something out towards the end of the year. Um, but bringing people back into your environment 
uh, and having a whole lot of touch points outside of just investments, we, we think is where the market's going. So uh, helping them with tasks and documents and um, you know, in-app chat, all those sort of things, uh, so that it becomes a real um, sort of a, a live experience as opposed to someone logging in to look at their portfolio balance maybe once a year when they get their annual statement. So. Yes, yes. The, the idea of being able to uh, provide your client with a digital logged-in environment is is very much uh, almost like a holy grail, right? Because it's right. difficult. It's difficult because the expectation is so high, right? I mean, X Y, uh, we took on. It's it's an ambitious goal of creating. You could call it Facebook for financial planners, right? And so, in, and you've done well. Yeah, thank you. And and in order to compete with Facebook, like there needs to be a higher level of user experience. Correct. And, and we spent about 12 months uh, building our own one and we launched it to uh, some beta testers and everyone said, we love what you're trying to do, but this is horrible. And I'm never going to use it. So we went, okay. Uh, interesting. Interesting. So, uh, so we, um, we ended up going with a third party um, over in Silicon Valley called Mighty Networks, but that was only to prove that advisors wanted a place to talk However, you still need to provide that outrageous user experience, which we just didn't have the money to be able to do. And thankfully, we're, we're able to sort of rent that place for um, a couple of years. And that's been our biggest challenge as we've gone through this project. We've done huge amounts of user testing and what we thought was the killer app at the start it turned out was very misguided. We had to completely overhaul all the navigation and uh, pretty much everything about it. Uh, but that we found out early on in the piece, which is a much better time to find out about it. Uh, but from, from the, uh, the user experience perspective, particularly when you're spanning so many different segments um, and even in the XY community, you've got a number of different segments. How do you design something that's going to be attractive for a, um, an accumulator, but also something yeah. really useful and, and appealing to a high net worth person that might have five, ten, or a million dollars or more? Uh, so trying to match Silicon Valley with private client, uh, we think we've we've got pretty close, uh, but it, it's been a good challenge. Actually, that is a, a very intense challenge because those two markets don't have too much in common. Um, so they've, how- got they've got different account balances, but you'd be surprised at the commonality they're looking for a great user experience oh sure yes, uh, yes they're yes, looking yes. for something visual uh they want something that they can navigate around easy so that there's a lot of commonality even yes. if the, uh, the outcomes and the numbers are very different yes 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 one yeah one's drawing down and one's building up um okay interesting uh what what would you see as and this is kind of going back to the start of the conversation what is the uncommon thing that you didn't expect to find in advisors that are doing well with tech? Is there something that's sort of not immediately noticeable, but there's a weird sort of trend, you're not quite sure why? Is there something like that? Mm, When you actually delve down into the data and you start to look at the type of groups, um, the answer is actually really obvious, uh, which is that those practices that are considered advice tech stars have got a Silicon Valley mindset. Right. So they're open to change. Uh, you know, they're the first ones to try out the shiny new toy, even if it's not necessarily going to be implemented in their business. Uh, they're not waiting for something to be very mature and, and effectively uh, you know, tried and tested before they put it into their business. So they're looking to make change. They're open to change. Um, and therefore, uh, they're going to be more successful by, by virtue of that in, in the advice tech space. So it's essentially an early adopter is... That, that's a common threat. So the, the early adopters are ultimately doing better with tech. Early adopters, uh, 
but that doesn't mean that they're putting in every bit of new tech. It's, it's more about the, they're open to new ideas. So they're open to the possibilities of what uh, they can achieve with tech as opposed to um, seeing it as a, uh, as a cost within the business, if you like. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, I'm interested to hear what you personally think about the future of financial advice in this country. Um, we've gone through hell of a lot of change recently, right? Um, an accelerating amount of change. And I think change in real time is really difficult for people to keep up with, but you know, it, it is the expectation that has been put on financial planners over, you know, pretty consistently, you know, what, what do you sort of see? I think I saw a report come out today. It was, uh, licensee fees are now on average about $40,000 give Mm. or take. Um, I'm surprised it's that low actually. Yeah. I, I, cause I'd seen something earlier done by the FPA that put it closer to 60. Right. Mm. So, um, so what do you see as, you know, the trends over the next sort of five years? Uh, who knows in five years over the ne- next couple of years, uh, there's, there's a whole range of things. The, the industry is still incredibly fragmented. Uh, and, and that's an environment that we actually really enjoy playing in because people are again, open to change. They're looking to make change. Across the industry, we're seeing a blank canvas approach to the future. So people are actually taking the opportunity, whether it's a new licensee um, or you know having to change their business model around uh, regulations, to actually say, okay, well, where do I want to be in two to five years, and what does my business look like? How am I going to get there, and who do I want to partner with? Uh, because I, I think even the um, the landscape as far as sort of you know who's available to work with has, has changed dramatically over the last couple of years. So uh, th- that, that's a real positive. Um, from a licensee perspective, we're seeing uh, what I'm calling sort of people moving on to their second and third marriages. Uh, so there's the initial uh, sort of movement from a lot of the big institutional groups. Uh, grass was greener. They made a jump uh, and it may have been to a small uh, group of, uh, you know, maybe advisors that they were friendly with or it may have been to another larger independent. For whatever reason, it hasn't worked out. And they're now looking at sort of what the second and third steps look like. So there's still a lot of movement and it's not like everyone's just going to say, we've got 18,000 advisors. They've all moved licensees. That's where it stops. It's far, far from our ending. And we're still seeing a, a huge amount of movement. Um, I think there's a big growth at the moment in self-licensing. Um, and I think that's being driven again, potentially by the, uh, some of the disappointment that people have felt with some of these sort of larger groups. Uh, but likewise, we're also seeing some really good quality, larger national groups emerging, becoming becoming even stronger, and having the financial resources to actually, you know, spend time on educating their their um, advisors about the technology available, as well as all of the sort of uh, educational standards and uh, and ethical requirements that they need. So, uh, I think licensee land is still going to change a lot uh, over the next couple of years. Um, from an advice perspective. Uh, you know, we've talked about it, that, you know, COVID has been incredible. A lot of advisors have been wanting to make changes the last two to three years. And since we've started the report, every time we look at the same metrics about intention to use, uh, I intend to use this over the next 12 to 24 months. Uh, it's all the big ticket items. And yet those numbers have not changed at all up until now. So people have had best intentions, but just not acted on them. Whereas now we're going to see some really significant change, I think, across all of those, those key metrics. Um, I think data is going to play an increasingly big part in advice um, through client portals and being able to sort of drive what we call actionable insights. Um, but also it's the first time really in you know, probably ever 
that the solutions out there that can bring all of the clients data together and start to actually give them that whole of wealth for you. Um, and that's really, really exciting from our perspective. Um, and I think we will start to see a lot more episodic advice. So men's engagement models are changing, um, but that advisors um, will need to be able to provide one-off advice. So I need help on my mortgage, I need help on insurance, whatever it might be. And not every client actually wants an ongoing um, relationship, but they want to know that there's someone there to talk to if they need help. Uh, so I think we, we're certainly going to see a, a number of new tools coming out in that space. In the, on the licensee front, um, the FPA came out and said that they're not quite sure if the licensees are going to exist. Do you have, do you have a view on that? Oh, look, I was, I was surprised actually that the FPA did come out with that view. It sort of came out of nowhere. Uh, normally these things sort of get discussed and talked about and, and you get to a point, whereas I think that comment or that position probably blindsided a lot of people in the industry. Um, I don't necessarily have a view on it. I think that the model that they're talking about is the one that exists overseas. Yeah. Um, it's quite specific. And again, there's various sort of forms of, of how it looks overseas. So the UK independent groups aren't necessarily independent. It just means that they can only, that they can use a broader list of providers, but not the whole market. So it, it's actually very complex to, to compare. Uh, but I think licensees play, play a critical role. And I think importantly, it's going to be around helping advisors um, you know, across things like practice management, it's going to be things, um, you know, making sure that they maintain their compliance standards. Uh, but I think like many other things we're seeing in the industry, it needs to move more and more towards a, a user pays model. So um, there's no point having uh, advisors pay for things and pay, you know, 60, 70, $80,000 uh, for services that they may not actually need or want. Uh, so how does that model change? I don't think we're going to end up in a subscription model, uh, but yes, certainly being able to have a bit of um, granularity around what they want and how they access it. Yeah. And I think as, as clients have expected more, um, I think even advisors now expect more as well. So if advisors are paying for, let's call it practice management help, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, what, what are they actually receiving? And, and previously, it probably wasn't that discussed. It wasn't that critiqued. But now you've got you know, uh, individuals like Sue Viskovich and Stu Bell and like a whole number of these uh, types of people who can really help with practice management. And so is the licensee uh, um, providing that level of value or should the individual advisor be spending that money on individually going out and, and sourcing that kind of value for themselves? That's a question that um, is very difficult to ask and answer. Um, but it's the kind of thing advisors are looking for value. It's kind of interesting looking just at, at advice as a whole sort of you could use the word blossoming from its own little um, insular view of this is how we do things. And it's very different to everything else. But, and now a, a lot of these regulation changes has forced it to enter into this open market of, Oh wow, this is actually how all professions operate and, you know, EBITDA and things like that, that mm -hmm. which wasn't really necessarily spoken about even just a handful of years ago. Um, it's now operating in, in, I guess, and yeah, like a level playing field with the rest of the professional services that are out there. And it's, I mean, the expectations from everyone's gone up and, and the part of me, uh, the, I, I have a little bit of empathy because change is difficult, but at the same time, so many advisors love where the advice profession is headed that you can't, that there's, there's, I guess there's a lot of that sort of, well, it's a burden, but we're willing to carry it to, to get us there. Um, mate, just to, just to uh, leave us, you know, on a, on a high note, what's the plans for, you know, net wealth. You mentioned very briefly at the, you know, what's coming up in the end of the year. What can you sort of give us? 
uh, always heaps going on at, uh, at NetWealth, but there's a couple of big things we're working on at the moment. Um, you know, user pay is probably a good segue. So increasingly, uh, which may or may not be popular with, with many practices, don't know, we, we are looking at having to change the way we think the platforms need to be priced. So we're seeing, uh, you know, prices have clearly come down across the industry um, and we're always happy to be competitive, um, but we need to price, if we're pricing the commodity, you need to pay for that, but there's a whole lot of other things that we're doing that are over and above what other platforms are doing. So how do we actually make sure that we get, like an advisor would, remunerated for, for the additional services? So uh, we've recently launched um, on in beta mode and we'll be rolling it out more broadly, uh, a service called XRAP, uh, which is a non-custodial off-platform administration service. So it's a bit of a mouthful, uh, <laughs> but, but effectively it allows an, a practice and advice firm to, to manage a client's assets that sit off platform that can't live on a custody platform for whatever reason. Right. Uh, and then that flows through into the broader reporting. Uh, so you can get performance reports and transaction listings and asset allocation. Uh, and that, that seems to be really resonating and it sort of helps fill in a, a bit of a gap that, that existed in the market. Um, our client portal project is uh, is getting very close to, to being beta launched, uh, hopefully in early November, uh, and that'll be a whole of wealth offering that allows, again, clients to, to see their platform assets, their off-platform assets, um, bank feeds, property, uh, a whole range of uh, sort of um, data that's generally not, not broadly available, um, as well as making sure that the platform remains, uh, you know, uh, ahead of the game and, uh, and, and number one in the industry. So n- never a dull moment. <laughs> Very cool. Well, mate, thank you so much for uh, sharing. Um, really appreciate you coming on and, and uh, giving us these insights. Uh, congratulations on the fourth year of the report. And uh, yeah. Thanks for uh, having me. Mate, Enjoy it's, yeah, no worries. Speak soon.